everybody. Oh, come on, I need a greeting or something. We gotta get this fired up. So uh, Michelle and I were flying to Tampa. There was a lady in front of us, uh, and we noticed her talking about Turning Point. We're like, wow, you know, this is kind of exciting. I come to find out she's connected with Larry Elder's campaign and with Turning Point, sweetest lady. I, I won't throw under the bus, but amazing. And uh, so we, we get the Turning Point thing, and all that happens, and Charlie's real excited about Larry possibly entering the race, and then we hear that he's out because uh, somebody was messing with it. Uh, and then I got a call uh, from a legislator here in California uh, that was there when they were ruling on it, and like firsthand, right when it happened, they called and they said, uh, Larry got in, he's on the ballot. I'm like, that's cool. And, and then, um, I, 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 where was I? I? Oh, I was in Phoenix, or maybe I wasn't. I don't remember where I was. Oh, I was in Albuquerque. And, and my phone rings, and I don't usually answer numbers that I don't recognize, so I pulled it out of my pocket, and when I pulled it out of my pocket, I answered it. So I'm like, oh gosh, uh, timeshare deal, hello. <laughs> Rob, Larry Elder. I'm like, don't you have anything better to do? You know, <laughs> my, my, my excitement about that was um, this little fellowship has uh, made an impact in this state, and uh, Larry Elder... <laughs> Larry Elder entered this race. I'll let him talk about that in a moment, but, but you're going to hear from two more candidates in the weeks to come. Uh, they're friends of mine. Now, there's almost 50 people registered to run for governor of the state. Folks will say, why did you give Larry all three services to speak? Well, first of all, because he's an amazing speaker, and, um, and if, if you want to have him at a fundraiser, good luck with that honorarium, uh, and he was coming for free, and I'm Scottish. <laughs> so I thought, boom, Win. And then look at all you, you showed up. So not when I'm here, but when he's here. It hurts a little bit, but I'll get over it. <laughs> but I have to tell you, uh, you folks are amazing. And we've been beaten up by the body of Christ in the sense that they don't understand why this church is so political. And so for all of you, just so you know, they say I don't preach the gospel. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I love him with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. I am who I am because he did what he did. I received his salvation, that free gift of salvation, that he bled and died on that cross for my sins. He was buried, he was resurrected. He's at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession. I received that gift of grace through faith. He took my sins and he cast them as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. I'm a child of the king. I have a new lease on life. Anything good in my life is a result of Jesus Christ completely. Anything bad, I take full credit for and I say that to you because politics is critical, but it's not important as your relationship with the living God. We're separated from him by our sin. Christ has resolved that. He paid the penalty for that sin when he died on that cross. You received that. He paid the price for a sin he didn't commit so that you could be reconciled to the Father. It's the only religion in the world where we don't earn it. He gives it to us. It's amazing. That's why they call it amazing grace. And I will live to my dying breath proclaiming that gospel. That's why I am who I am and why I do what I do. The gospel is the most important thing. But the second most important thing is protecting the government that protects the preaching of that gospel. And we have seen in this state unprecedented tyranny in the suppression of, of truth. 
We are now off of Facebook for 14 days because we had the audacity to deal with the Delta variant. You just mention that and you go to YouTube prison. You see, the lie is afraid of truth, so they must suppress it in order to put forward their propaganda and frighten people. And we've been contending with that. I've never seen such censorship in all my life. And so folks will say, you're gonna lose your 501c3 status. Well, first of all, that's never been prosecuted, the Johnson Amendment, and secondly, they have violated, that governor's violated our First Amendment rights, and secondly, the supervisor who has led that onslaught to this church and churches in this county, who's up for recall and signed that petition while you're here. That is fully within our rights of the Johnson Amendment because it directly affects our religious liberty. And that's why California needs a new governor. Ladies and gentlemen, Larry Elder. Thank you so much. I did. Thank you. Micah, that was beautiful. Pastor Rob, thank you so much for allowing me to borrow your congregation for a few minutes. I had no intention whatsoever running for public office. Ever. Ever. I never dissed politicians. I always thought it was kind of courageous that you put your private life ahead and that every two years, four years, six years as a vote and you lose, you lose your job. So I never really ridiculed them, but I never thought I would be one. Let me... Check that for a second. I did run for class president, fifth grade. <laughs> I carry three out of four rows, the slaughter. They're still cleaning up the blood. But I never thought I'd run for office, let alone governor of California. And when I was first approached, um, a young lady began writing me letters. Her name is Jenny Sand. And she wrote letter after letter after letter explaining why I ought to run and that I could win and how much money could be raised because of my name recognition. And I told my girlfriend, Nina, she keeps writing me. Let's just have coffee with her and just get rid of her. <laughs> so we decided to have coffee with her for 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Four hours later, <laughs> I still wasn't convinced, but I was convinced about her sincerity. And then Dennis Prager approached me. <laughs> and Dennis Prager, if it weren't for him, I wouldn't be on radio. I met him in Cleveland. Uh, before I got on radio and um, we started talking, we became friends, and I knew nothing at all about talk radio. My mother was a big fan of talk radio. KABC became the first 24-7 talk radio in history. I think it was 1965. My mom had it on the very first day and always had it on KABC. So I'm living in Cleveland now, and Dennis Prager is there. Uh, he is sitting in for a host of a show called Morning Exchange where, that, I, that I appeared on from time to time as a lawyer explaining things uh, in lay terms. And so I walk in, and instead of Fred Griffith, there's Dennis Prager, this big guy. And um, I did my thing, and Dennis was kind of impressed with the 10-minute segment we did on, I think it was workplace harassment or something like that, live show. And as I am getting ready to leave, taking off my mic, I hear somebody say, Dennis, when are you going back to Los Angeles? And I said, are you from L.A.? He goes, well, not originally, but I live there now. I said, well, I'm from L.A. I live in Cleveland. 
And we had a 90-second conversation, and he found out that I was conservative. And he said, the next time you're in L.A., uh, why don't you come on my radio show? And I said, uh, okay, fine. I didn't pay too much attention to it. That night, I'm talking to my mom. And we were talking about family business, and at the end of the conversation, I said, wait, before you hang up, I met somebody uh, this afternoon. He's in talk radio. I know you like talk radio. I never did. I thought it was a bunch of noise. When I walk in the room, she had it on. I didn't understand the appeal. And I said, I met somebody who's in talk radio. She said, what's his name? I said, his name is Dennis something. Dennis Popper, Dennis Piker, Dennis... She said, Prager? And almost blew off my ear. It's like I'd met Elvis. <laughs> and I said, he told me the next time I'm in L.A., he'd have me on. She goes, really? He rarely has guests. That's a big deal. I said, really? So fast forward, Christmas rolls around. I'm in L.A., and I called Dennis, and he didn't return the phone call. And that didn't surprise me. Six months had now gone by. You know, you call my guy, I call your guy, let's have lunch. I thought it was just that phony Hollywood stuff. And my mother said, did you call Dennis? I said, yes. Did he, did he call back? She, I said, no. She said, call him again right now. Put the phone. And I called Dennis. <laughs> so Dennis answered the phone this time. He had me on for an hour. And I get back to L.A., and the station manager named George Green called, and he asked me to come back for a two-day audition. Now, I want to back up. I had been on radio before. Um, I was living in Cleveland, and I began writing op-ed pieces for newspapers. I always wanted to be a writer. The, the lawyer thing, TV thing, uh, radio thing still blows my mind. I wanted to be a writer. But I also knew writers didn't make any money. I didn't want to be broke. <laughs> um, so I wrote in, writing these pieces for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and one of them finally got published. And it was about 35 years ago, and I wrote that racism is no longer a major problem in America, that if you work hard, irrespective of your race, uh, stay, stay, stay clean, invest in yourself, you'll be just fine in America. I didn't think it was some big statement. You say that now, people think you're crazy. But back then, 35 years ago, phone rings. It's a programming director of a radio host in Cleveland. Now, I should tell you, I never listened to talk radio. I live downtown Cleveland. I walk to work. So the experience that a lot of people have of driving, listening to talk radio, I never had it. But even if I did drive to work, I probably wouldn't have listened to talk radio. I really didn't even like it. And um, he said, I read your article. You don't think that racism is a major problem in America? I said, no, I don't. He said, are you black? And I said, I've been told. <laughs> he said, will you come on my guy's radio station and, and, and talk about your article? I said, sure. So I was on for a whole hour. Now that I'm in talk radio, I know how long a period of time that is for somebody who's never been on radio. It is a long time. So you have to be really rocking and rolling. Now, Cleveland is 50% black. So most of the callers were black people offended by my assertion that racism is no longer a major problem in America. And I was called an Uncle Tom. I was called a bootlicking Uncle Tom. I was called a foot-shuffling, bootlicking Uncle Tom. A bug-eyed, foot-shuffling, bootlicking Uncle Tom. A coconut, as in brown on the outside, white on the inside. And Oreo, same concept. I was called the Antichrist. And then this black man calls up, and he says, the thing that you call somebody black when you really, really want to hurt him. I was called Republican. A man can only take so much. <laughs> but you know what I wasn't called? I wasn't called wrong. When I said that the number one problem facing the country in general, and black America in particular, is the absence of fathers in the home. 
I wasn't called wrong. I said in 1965, when nouveau liberal Lyndon Johnson launched a so-called war on poverty, 25% of black kids enter the world without a father married to the mother. Now that number is almost 70%. We can have a discussion about to what degree slavery and Jim Crow had to do with that 25%, but you cannot tell me that the 70% had anything to do with slavery and Jim Crow. These are public policies that incentivized women to marry the government and allowed men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility. And forget about Larry. Barack Obama once said, a kid raised without a father is five times more likely to be poor and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up in jail. I was not called wrong. So I did the whole hour, I get back to my office, phone rings, and it's the station manager. He said, I heard you today. You were on for a whole hour. You were amazing. I said, I was? Oh, my goodness. You have a good speaking voice. You took difficult positions. You defended them without losing your temper or your sense of humor. Have you ever, ever thought about doing talk radio? And I said, no. <laughs> and he said, I have a guy going on vacation for a week. Will you sit in for him? And I said, no. <laughs> and he said, why? I said, I don't really like talk radio. He said, what is it that you don't like about it? I said, I don't like yelling at people. I don't like being yelled at. He said, are you married? At the time I was, he said, do me a favor, go home to your wife and talk it over and then call me tomorrow, maybe she'll change your mind. I said, I'll do that, but I doubt that I'll change my mind. So I went home to my wife, Cindy, and, and I told her about this. She said, what do, you, what do you think about talk radio? I said, I know nothing about it. I mean, I knew who Howard Stern was, I knew who Rush Limbaugh was, are you yawning? And uh, <laughs> I said, but that's all I know. And she said, well, what do you think? I said, I think of talk radio as shallow, glib, and stupid. She said, it is you'd be good at it. <laughs> it took me a while, but I met Dennis, and that's how, ultimately how I got on, on radio. Um, my, uh, my father came to California right after the war, 1945. Uh, my father uh, worked two full-time jobs as a janitor, bought a house in South Central LA, uptown, and I just checked with Zillow the other day, and that house is now worth $600,000. Somebody with an eighth grade dropout, even if he worked two or three jobs, would not be able to get up the DP to buy a house like that because the cost of living in California has gotten so outrageously high. And one of the reasons for that is the stranglehold the environmental extremists have on Sacramento that's causing developers to take a lot longer to build homes. They're causing homes to be much more expensive in California. The average price of a home in California is 150% more than the average price of a home in America. And one of my frequent guests on my radio show is a man named Leo Hanian. He is brilliant UCLA econ professor, and he tells me because of rules, environmental rules, the average price of a home in California is literally 50% more than it otherwise would be, but for these environmental regulations. That is one of the reasons why I'm running for governor. I'm going to do something about that. Another reason I want to run for governor is because I'm going to do something about the quality of public education in this country, in this state. The average black boy in California, K through 12, 75% of black boys cannot read at state levels of proficiency, 75%. And those levels are not high. 
50% of third graders cannot read at state levels of proficiency. And again, those proficiency levels are not high. I went to Crenshaw High School. Anybody saw the movie Boys in the Hood? That's my high school. I just checked. 2% of kids at Crenshaw are math proficient. Now, who sends their kid to a school where only 2% of the kids are math proficient? And by the way, around the area is the Crips gang. I know that because Ice-T told me that he chose Crenshaw High School after I graduated because he wanted to go to a high school that was a Crips school. Now, I want choice. The polls show that black and brown parents living in the inner city support school choice, so the money follows the child rather than the other way around. You know who doesn't? Teachers union. They are adamantly opposed, I'm not teachers, teachers union. They're adamantly opposed to school choice. And I saw a study not long ago that looked at where public school teachers send their own school age children. Average family, 10% of us have our kids in private school. 6% of black families have their kids in private school. 44% of Philadelphia public school teachers with school-age kids have their own kids in private school. 39% of Chicago public school teachers have their own school-age kids in private schools. Twice as many public school teachers in the LA district have their own kids in private school as opposed to households with no public school teachers in them. That's the equivalent of opening up a restaurant, putting up a sign saying, come on in, just don't eat the food. Yeah. <laughs> Two-thirds of black parents say they do not want to send their kids back to LAUSD when school reopens in the fall, assuming it reopens. And one of the reasons is they feel that the worst teachers end up in the inner city schools. They don't put them in the west side, they don't put them in the valley, they put them in south central. Yet, they still pull that lever time and time again for the Democratic Party. And I was telling this to a black newspaper that interviewed me, something called the Sacramento Observer. I walk in and they're looking at me, their body language, I can tell they think I'm an Uncle Tom, I'm a sellout. And I said, aren't you tired? He said, what do you mean? I said, aren't you tired of the fact that 75% of black boys cannot read at state levels of proficiency? Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of pulling the lever for the party that won't give you what you want? School choice? What is the first step towards leaving poverty? At least finish high school. Presumably one where you can read, write, and compute at grade level. And all too often, those who do graduate from an urban high school, when they go to Tri-C or college, if they go there, they have to take remedial math and remedial reading. Aren't you tired? I said, do you know something called CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act? He said, no. I said, I talked to a lot of developers in preparing for this run. And developer after developer after developer tells me that under this law, Virtually anybody can stop any construction project for any reason for an indefinite period of time. You were just telling me when I walked in that you were going to buy a house, but you looked around and you couldn't afford it. And I told him about the stats about how much a house costs in California and why. I said, aren't you tired of these elite, wealthy people, many of whom live in wonderful homes, stopping other projects? There was a project here in Ventura County years ago called Amundsen Ranch. Remember that? It would have been 9,000 homes. It was on pristine land, I'll give you that. I like pristine land. Uh, but the city council approved the project. A bunch of environmentalists began filing lawsuits. They were probably going to lose until Rob Reiner entered it. Now, um, I don't know where Rob Reiner lives, but unless he lives on a houseboat, 
wherever he lives, was probably pristine at one time too. He stopped the project, and on the 10th year anniversary of the stoppage, they were all high-fiving themselves like little kids. I read a long article about the people that stopped the project and how happy they were. Not one word about the 9,000 people who otherwise would have had homes. Not one word about the pressure now this puts on existing homes. Not one word about supply and demand, economics 101, small supply, high demand, price goes up. I said, aren't you tired of people like that stopping you from getting the house? You just now complained you couldn't get a house? And all of a sudden, their body language changed. I'm not saying all of a sudden they became Reagan Democrats, <laughs> but I could tell this is the first time anybody ever said that to them. Crime. Crime is up, shootings up, homicides up in San Francisco, in Oakland, in LA, in San Diego. Just the other day, Barbara Boxer, the former senator, got mugged. Someone. <laughs> I cannot believe I'm in church and you're cheering somebody being mugged. We're all going to burn. And the Oakland Police Department head, just happened to be black, just earlier talked about all the money being diverted from his department for programs. I'm in Los Angeles. They just diverted $150 million for programs, not just for youth, but for black youth, probably unconstitutional. Isn't the left wonderful about dealing with the consequences of things they cause? The reason for the need for the youth programs is because of what I said earlier about no fathers in the home. So no fathers in the home, more likely it is the kids are not doing what they should be doing. So let's deal with the symptoms. Let's not deal with what I caused. And I said, this narrative, the police are engaging in systemic racism. I said, you know it's a lie. I always try and use left-wing sources whenever I can. The Washington Post. April 27, I know that because it's my birthday, 2016, long article, I urge you all to Google it at some point and read it, long article about decade after decade after decade of research showing not only are cops not using deadly force against black people just because they're black, but they're more hesitant, more reluctant to pull the trigger on a black suspect than a white suspect. Same year, 2016, July, front page story, New York Times, there's a Harvard professor, black, named Roland Fryer. He is so brilliant, he is the youngest tenured professor in the history of Harvard, and Harvard is the oldest college in the country. And he just knew, based upon the headlines, Freddie Gray, the one who died in the police van in Baltimore, Tamir Rice, the one who was shot after twirling the replica gun in Cleveland, Michael Brown, of course, in Ferguson, uh, um, Eric Gardner, he was the guy selling Lucy's in New York, and he died in police custody. He just knew, Roland Fryer, that the police was using deadly force against black people just because they're black. And thought he would do a study to, to confirm his conclusion. So he did a study. He said the results were the most surprising of my professional career. Not only were the police not using deadly force against black people just because they were black, he found out that they were more hesitant, more reluctant to pull the trigger on a black suspect than a white suspect. Now, the left believes a lot of stupid things. And many stupid things they believe are harmless. This is harmful. This causes damage. This causes real world damage in two ways. Much of police work is discretionary. In fact, most of it is. You can choose to get out of your squad car and intervene when you think something looks suspicious. Or you can sit there and just respond to radio calls. Proactive policing versus passive policing. And so because of this accusation that the police are engaging in systemic racism, Cops all over the country are engaging in passive policing. 
What's the upside? I get out of my car. If I'm white, I'm going to be accused of engaging in systemic racism. If I'm black, I'm going to be accused of being an Uncle Tom, engaging in systemic racism. To hell with it. Cops are pulling back in every major city. Rahm Emanuel, the former mayor of Chicago, said the police have now, quote, gone fetal, close quote, his term, not mine, because of this false accusation that they're engaging in systemic racism. So what happens? Bad guys know it. Crime goes up. And the people who are disproportionately affected by that are people living in the inner city, black and brown people, the left they claim to care about. And as a result, we have this ridiculous narrative. You know who I blame in part for this? I blame Barack Obama. I'll tell you why. Al Sharpton is the flame-throwing anti-Semitic hate monger, but he's a caricature. Minister Farrakhan is a hate monger, but he's also a caricature, very small congregation. But people respect people like Barack Obama. People respect people like Eric Holder. They speak in beautiful sentences, they have great degrees, they're both lawyers, and Barack Obama is one of the most admired men in this country. I was in the arena in 2004 when he spoke. He introduced John Kerry. And he gave a speech and he said, there's no blue America, there's no red America, there's just one America, and people went nuts. There's no black America, there's no white America, there's one America, people went nuts. I turned to my producer, I said, he's not saying anything. He's saying it well, he's not saying anything. I said, he's probably gonna run for president someday, and I bet he's gonna get elected. Now, Obama in 2007 gave a speech at a black church. He was thinking about running it, he had not yet announced. And he was talking about how much racism there is in America. And he said something I thought was perfectly sensible. He said, the generation of Martin Luther King, the Moses generation, has gotten us 90% of the way there. I thought that was quite reasonable. He said, the Joshua generation, my generation, has to get us that additional 10%. I thought that was a bit ambitious because back in 2002, Fox News did an opinion poll and they found out 8% of Americans believe Elvis is still alive. <laughs> 4% believe if you send him a letter, he will get it. So I thought maybe you could work with, a little bit with that additional 2%. <laughs> now, the man gets elected. And by the way, he ran against Hillary for the nomination on the Democrat side. And there was John McCain and Mitt Romney running on the Republican side. Gallup did a poll 2007. What percentage of Americans would not vote for somebody black? 2007. 5% said they would not vote for a black person, no matter how qualified. 11% said they would not vote for a woman. 24% said they would not vote for a Mormon, referring to Mitt Romney. 42% said they would not vote for a man as old as John McCain would have been had he become president. So Obama had a lower barrier than these three white politicians. And now we're talking about, fast forward, he gets elected, and what did he say? The Cambridge police acted stupidly. The first time he had an opportunity to tamp down this BS. The Cambridge police acted stupidly, is what he said. You might recall what happened. His friend, Henry Louis Gates, who's a tenured professor at Harvard, and a friend of Obama's, came home from vacation and forgot his door key. So he and the cab driver broke into his door. A neighbor saw this, called 911. Don't you want your neighbors to do this? Don't you want your neighbor to be proactive and make sure nothing, that's what, that's what you want. So Cambridge police officer shows up, sees this man in the house, doesn't know if the man belongs to the house, politely asks him to come out. And what did this Harvard professor say? He says, I'll come out if your mama tells me to come out. 
really? He gets briefly arrested. And instead of Obama saying, you know, I spoke with my friend Henry Louis Gates last night, and I said, Skip, Skip, what are you doing? Come on, knock it off. Cop's just doing his job. Neighbor's just doing her job. And you turn it into a race thing? Knock it off. That's not what he said. What did he say? And I'm quoting, the Cambridge police acted stupidly. No, they did not. They did their job. It infuriated cops all around the country. And Obama never backed down. He then said later on, racism is in America's DNA. Hold the phone. 1958, Gallup asked Americans, would you vote for a black president? Only 38% said yes. Fast forward, only 3% said they would not. Now, if it's in our DNA, how does that change? Obama gave a speech before the United Nations and it mentioned Ferguson. We have our own problems. We have a place called Ferguson. Ferguson was a lie. Michael Brown did not have his hands up, did not say don't shoot. They did a full investigation. Michael Brown's DNA was on the officer's gun because he was trying to get the gun. Officer was completely vindicated. It's a lie. If I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. What does it even mean? And the jury found unanimously that George Zimmerman was not guilty and there was a black alternate who didn't sit on the jury, but the black alternate said, I would have come to the same conclusion and race never came up. America is the least racist majority society in the world. Yeah. Back in 1991, a man named Orlando Patterson, he's black, he's a Harvard sociologist, tenured professor, and he said back in 1991, America is the least racist majority society, white majority society in the world, provides more opportunities, more benefits, more protections, and greater prosperity for black people than any other country in the world, including all of those of Africa. Knock it off. Knock it off. You can be anything you want to be in America. And it's been that way for a very long period of time. All of us hit the lottery when we were born in this country. All of us did. My father came to California in 1945, right after the war. My father was um, in the Marines, and before he joined the Marines, he came out to California, and he was astonished. He was a Pullman porter. They were the largest private employer of blacks in those days. He was astonished he could walk into a restaurant in the front door and get served. My father always told me when he was a Pullman porter, he had packages of crackers and tins of tuna because he never knew if he was going to be able to walk into a restaurant and get served. But in, the, in L.A., he could walk in the front door and he got served. He was stunned by that. Made a middle note that maybe someday I will relocate to L.A. Pearl Harbor. My dad joined the Marines. I said, Dad, why the Marines? He said, two reasons. They go where the action is, and I love their uniforms. <laughs> now, I will tell you, I despised my father growing up, and my two brothers did as well. I didn't think it was me, I thought it was him. He was mean, he was ornery, he got mad. He got mad at something that we did, and then we do the same thing, and he wouldn't get mad, so he couldn't even figure him out. He spanked us hard with a belt, I thought too often, I thought too severely, I thought for trivial reasons, I despised my father. And I 
every day I thought, at some point I'm going to be big enough and strong enough to kick his butt. And I thought about it. And I'm telling you, it didn't go away. It wasn't like I was mad for here and there. I always despised my father. Unfortunately, my father uh, first came to California. He worked two full-time jobs as a janitor, cleaned toilets for an Nabisco brand bread. Uh, when he came out, he took a second job at another bread company cleaning toilets. Uh, my father was able to save his nickels and dimes and buy a house in South Central that is now worth $600,000. Stay-at-home wife, my mother, until the youngest of us was in middle school. That's a route that nobody with an eighth grade dropout education could do right now because of the cost of living in California. Unfortunately, the SOB starts a cafe and I have to work for him now. <laughs> I'm 10 years old and my dad is honorary to work for. He's the same way he is at home, yelling at me. And we're talking about a little diner. When I say restaurant, it sounds like a big thing. It's a little restaurant, a little diner. So everybody can hear everything. And this guy is still yelling at me, screaming at me in front of people. It's embarrassing. Now I'm 15 years old, I've worked for him for five years, hated every day of it, and I would love to tell you that I said to myself, the next time the SOB yells at me, I'm gonna walk up to him and I'm gonna say, now see here, we're gonna sit down and we're gonna talk about having an adult relationship going forward. I couldn't say that, I was afraid of my father. But I did tell myself, the next time the SOB yells at me, I'm gonna walk out. The waitress had called in sick, the restaurant was full of people, and my dad yelled at me. I went in the back, I took off my apron, and I walked out. That was an act of defiance my father had never seen from any of us. He came home that night, and he was steamed. He said, why did you leave? And I said, Dad, I got sick and tired of the way you spoke to me, and I was not going to put up with it anymore. My father paid me $10 a day plus tips. He bought the $10, he threw it at me as I lay on my bed. He walked out, and my father and I did not have another conversation for 10 years. Now, when I say not another conversation, I mean not another conversation, not even how about those Rams? Do you think the Dodgers might win? Is it going to rain? Nothing. And he was easy to avoid, not that we had a big house or anything. My dad worked long hours. I knew what his hours were. I was in high school, and I just avoided him. I graduate from high school. I go to college in the East Coast. I go to law school in the Midwest. I end up working in the Midwest. And I, of course, would come home to visit my mom, but I would make sure that we were never in the same room. I didn't speak to the SOB for 10 years. I'm now 25 years old. I passed the California bar. I passed the Ohio bar. I'm working for a major law firm in Cleveland, and I'm making the equivalent of around $150,000, 25 years old. I should be living large, but I couldn't sleep. I was having difficulty sleeping, and I knew it had to do with my dad. Not that I ever thought we'd be friends. Not that I ever thought we'd reconcile our relationship. In fact, I didn't want to. I didn't care. I just wanted to be able to sleep. And so I called my secretary and I said, cancel all my appointments. I'm going to LA. I'll be back in a couple of days. And I figured I would just sit down with my dad and tell him what an awful father he was. He'd tell me I was an ungrateful son. Five or 10 minute conversation. Maybe I'd be able to sleep. So I didn't tell them I was coming. I knew the restaurant closed at 2.30. I got to LAX. I took a cab from LAX directly to the restaurant, uh, which is in um, Pico Union area. I walk in at 1.30, my dad was shocked to see me. I had a big bag with me. And my dad said, shall I put your bag in the back? I said, no, dad, I'm only gonna be here for five or 10 minutes, I'm gonna tell you something. He said, okay, wait until we close. So I sat down at the counter for an hour, and I said, now Larry, don't tee off on the man. 
Don't tell him everything he's ever done, every spanking, every whipping. Don't do that. Just give him the highlight, cliff notes, five minutes out the door. He'll call you an ungrateful son. You call him a harsh, ungrateful father, and maybe you'll be able to sleep. So my dad sat to the stool next to me, and I teed off on him. You guys know how I can go. And I told him every spanking, every whipping, the time he spanked me in front of my cousin Elaine, which was embarrassing. The time he spanked me in front of my friend named Carl, which was embarrassing. The time he spanked me one time because we were wetting up the bathroom. I told him everything that ever happened that I could think of, and I spoke nonstop for 20 minutes. And after 20 minutes, I was out of ammo. My father looked up and he said, is that it? You didn't speak to me for 10 years because of that? And for the first time, I saw my father cry. I never thought the man was capable of such an activity. And my father said to me, let me tell you about my father. And I need to pause here. I knew my dad was an only child because we didn't get very many Christmas presents. And I met his mother one time. Outside of that, I knew nothing about my father and I didn't give a damn. I didn't like him anyway. What do I care about his life? And my father said, your last name, Elder? I said, yes. He said, that's not my father's name. I said, really? What's your father's name? He said, I don't know. I never met my father. And I said, well, who's Elder? He said, he was, in the man, he was a man that was in my life the longest, maybe four or five years. He said, my mother never worked. She was irresponsible. She could neither read nor write. She just lived off different men. She had a series of men, each one worse than the one before. Elder was an alcoholic who was physically abusive to her. And a couple times I tried to stop him. He was physically abusive to me. And one day he said, I came home at the age of 13. And he said, I started quarreling with my mom's then boyfriend. She sided with the boyfriend, threw me out of the house, never to return. Black boy, Athens, Georgia, at the beginning of the Great Depression, Jim Crow South. And I said, well, Dad, what did you do? And for the next eight hours, the two of us talked, and he explained to me his whole life. Every now and then, we get up to use the restroom, but we sat in two chairs, two stools for eight hours. I said, well, Dad, what did you do? He said, I went down the country road, and I just knocked on the door, and I said, you need anything? You need anything? And I picked up trash. I finally got a job shining shoes. I got a job as a hotel valet. Uh, and then I got a job as a Pullman porter on the trains. They were the largest private employer of blacks in those days. And I was able to travel all around the country, and that's when he came to Los Angeles. And he was astonished he could walk in and get served. And I, I said, well, well Dad, y- y- you always seem so, so, so grouchy, so angry. And he said, I had 15 minutes of sleep, 15 minutes of sleep here, two full-time jobs, he cooked for a family on the weekends and went to night school to get his GED. The man never slept. If I don't get five hours of sleep, you don't want to be around me. (laughs) This man never slept. 15 minutes here, 20 minutes here, 35 minutes here, 40 minutes here. Not just day after day, not just week after week, not just month after month, year after year after year. Now you do that and you walk into a house with three rambunctious boys throwing things. What kind of mood are you going to be in? And he said, you know, in the time that I, that I was married before, I, I cut it, whoa, 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 whoa. You, you were married before mom? They were married 56 years. He said, you didn't know that? I said, how am I supposed to know that? I, thought, I said, how long were you married? I thought you were gonna say six months, nine months, a year. Seven years. 
You were married to somebody other than mom for seven years? What happened? She cheated on me, and I wanted to have children. She couldn't have children, so we got divorced. And then the other time I was married, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> you were married before that? Yes. What happened? I married a woman. I was 19 years old. She's roughly the same age. Her parents thought I wasn't good enough for her because I was an eighth grade dropout, took her to court to annul the marriage. So one marriage annulled, another one, woman cheats on you, and then you marry mom? He said, because I always wanted to have kids. All this time, I wondered why he had kids, because I thought he was so mean, what was the point? So during the eight hour conversation, the man gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and Larry gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and now I'm crying. And I said, Father, please forgive me. And my dad said, there's nothing to forgive. You just didn't know. Just follow the lessons always given you and your brothers. Hard work wins. You get out of life what you put into it. Larry, you cannot control the outcome, but you are 100% in control of the effort. And before you moan and groan about what somebody did to you or said to you, go to the nearest mirror, look at it and say, what could I have done to change the outcome? And finally, he said this, no matter how hard you work, no matter how good you are, sooner or later, bad things are going to happen. How you deal with those bad things will tell your mother and me if we raised a man. I wrote a book about all this. Thank you. I wrote a book about this conversation. Uh, it's called Dear Father, Dear Son, Two Lives, Eight Hours, because when I returned to Cleveland, and by the way, after that conversation, my dad and I became the best of friends for the next 35 years. He wrote me a letter. He never wrote anybody a letter, let alone me, and he said, Dear Son. And I wrote him back, and I said, Dear Father. And the book is called Dear Father, Dear Son, Two Lives, Eight Hours. It's available for anybody that wants to read it. And I'm so happy that when it came out, I get letters from people, mostly from men, saying, I had a dad like yours. And these are white men, Hispanic, Asian, it didn't matter. And your book has inspired me to reach out to my father and reconnect. Your book has inspired me to appreciate him more. And it's the, I think it's the greatest thing I've ever written. It's the thing I'm most proud of. Now, I... Um, have not mentioned my mother. My mother was tough. My mother was focused. She always told us to invest in ourselves. And she was so, so incredibly tough. When I was a kid, I had a paper route. And the guy that bossed us all around was named George. And I was really good in math, and I knew that George was cheating us. And I had a paper route, and I was short $28. $28 is a lot of money when you're 13 years old back in the 60s. And I said, Mom, this guy, is, this guy says he doesn't owe me any money, but I see here he, he owe me about $28. And she said, get my hat. <laughs> and we walked in. George was at the back of the room. And just by the way my mother was walking, George opens the drawer and starts going like this. <laughs> My mother and I talked about it years later, and I reminded her about it. I said, Mom, she said, I have regrets about that. I said, really? She said, what? She said, that man was cheating all you boys. I should have gotten all your money. <laughs> I told my mother once, if she'd gone into politics, she'd have been a senator. If she'd gone into crime, she would have been Jack the Ripper. <laughs> and my mother told my brothers and me, no one can make you feel inferior without your permission.
Now, I was interviewed recently by a reporter, and she said, Larry, you don't believe there's systemic racism. I said, no, I don't. Uh, I said, I'm not saying there aren't individual racists, but I don't believe there's systemic racism. She said, have you ever had any issues with racism? I said, of course. I don't know anybody my age, plus or minus, whatever, who hasn't had something. She kept going on and on and on about asking me to talk about individual instances where I was, where I was uh, called a nigger or something. I, I said, why are you obsessing over this? Have I had stuff? Nothing consequential? And so I didn't go into any, anything that ever happened to me. But if you want to play that game, every time anything that ever happened to me, the people that are most outraged are non-racist white people. It's almost like cops. The persons that hate bad cops more than anybody else are good cops. It makes them all look bad. I was in the Cub Scouts, and we went to a jamboree in Yukaipa with hundreds, hundreds, and hundreds of Boy Scouts there. Just a handful of them were black because I was on a little hill. They were able to look, overlook all of them. And every now and then you see a little brown dot. So I knew there weren't very many of them. I was in a cabin with around eight or nine white guys, and there was one white kid who didn't like me and called me a nigger. I literally had to restrain these other kids from killing them. They were more angry than I was. And every time something like that has happened, that's always been my experience. I was practicing law in Cleveland, Ohio. I'd just done a deposition with my opposing counsel, who was white. We're standing in front of the office of the doctor, and a carload of three or four white teenagers go by, and one of them says, hey, nigger, you're in Euclid. It's sundown. Get the blank out of town. And David, my opposing counsel, was, went white. He was like this. He said, did you? I said, of course I heard it. He said, well, I said, David, punks. And plus they're cowards. They didn't even slow down. <laughs> I said, I'm at Squire, Sanders, and Dempsey. I'm making all this money. I could buy that car three times over. I said, don't worry about it. He was more angry than I was. That's always been my experience. Why are we, why are we doing it? What's, what's this game? And I've always told people, pick up your magic wand. Wave it over America. Let's remove every smidgen of racism from the hearts of white America. Now it's gone. Everybody here now thinks like Mother Teresa. <laughs> Do we still have 70% of black kids entering the world without a father married to the mother? Do we still have a 50% urban dropout rate in many of our cities? Do we still have a situation where those who do graduate from our urban high schools often cannot read, write, and compute at grade level? Is it still the case that the number one cause of preventable death for young white boys is accidents, like car accidents? Is it still the case that the number one cause of preventable death for young black boys is homicide, almost always at the hands of another young black boy? Is it the case that a young white, a young black boy is eight times more likely to be a victim of a homicide compared to a young white boy? If the answer to that series of questions is yes, then I submit to you systemic racism is not the problem and critical race theory and reparations are not the answer. I see that my clock is down. I want to leave you with a few things, if I may. When I was growing up, one of my heroes was Sandy Koufax. I love Sandy Koufax. Was there ever a greater pitcher? And he did it with such class and style. And I remember during the World Series, Sandy Koufax refused to pitch on Yom Kippur. I said, Mom, what is Yom Kippur, and why is it so important that he wouldn't pitch? My mother taught Sunday school. We went to church every Sunday. And she explained to me how important this high holy holiday was and that Sandy Koufax wasn't even particularly religious.
but he still refused to pitch on Yom Kippur. It made me respect him even more. Um, I always wanted to be a writer, and at one time I dabbled with thinking I would be a poet. Now, the first thing I ever wrote was in the sixth grade, and I wrote a poem about Sandy Koufax. And the first stanza was this. Koufax is on the mound, the game has just begun, he gets a sign from the catcher, and swish, strike one. It got published in his little annual. And fast forward 30 years later, I meet Sandy Koufax. I'm at a black tie affair, I'm in the nosebleed seats, he's down in the front, and I'm with a publicist named Warren Cowan, he kind of invented the, the PR game. He knows everybody. I said, Warren, can, can you get me to, to meet Sandy Koufax? Wait here, I'll be right back. He goes, follow me. We walk down and there's Sandy Koufax. And he stands up and he looks great. I said, Sandy, you were one of my heroes growing up. Uh, the first po poem I ever wrote was about you. It got published. Can I give you the first stanza? He goes, sure. I said, Koufax is on the mound. The game has just begun. He gets a sign from the catcher and swish, strike one. He puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, don't quit your day job. <laughs> Finally, one other, one other thing, Pastor, if I may. My girlfriend, Nina, and I were in Santa Barbara uh, about a month ago. This is a true story. I'm not changing one word. And if you know Santa Barbara, if you know the demographics of Santa Barbara, it's not exactly Wakanda. <laughs> so, I, so I get out of the car. I get out of the car, and I hear a deep male voice go, Hey, want a banana? <laughs> now I'm looking up to assess the situation. I'm not sure what I would have done. And it's a white guy with a van, and the trunk is open, and there's a big bag of bananas. <laughs> and he's talking to another white guy who's homeless, picking through a garbage can. <laughs> so I said to the driver, hey, I thought you were talking to me. I was going to accuse you of systemic racism. <laughs> he starts laughing. I said, I'm still going to accuse you of systemic racism. How come the only guy you offer the banana to is that white guy? <laughs> the homeless guy is laughing. And I said, I don't even like bananas. <laughs> homeless guy goes, you're a funny guy, you're a funny guy. I said, I'm here all week. <laughs> Two drink minimum, throw something in the tip jar. I get in the car, I said, Nina, did I just ask a homeless guy to give me a tip? I'm going to burn in hell. Now, uh, I have no hope of beating this man without your help. So please, my website is electelder.com, electelder.com, the top largest individual contribution anybody can make is $32,400. I know Chuck's got it. Um, <laughs> Chuck's going to go home, shake the couch cushions, you know, scoop up 30, 32, 4, I, I, I know it. Um, he can raise an unlimited amount of money. I cannot. So unless people help, uh, I'm not going to be able to beat this man. So please, uh, go to electelder.com, electelder.com. And thank you so much for inviting me here. May God bless you. And may God continue to bless the United States of America. Can I do it again? <laughs> Grab a seat. Uh, I'll say to you what Henry VIII said to his fourth wife. I won't be keeping you long. <laughs> That's terrible. Uh, Larry's going to kind of head out that way because uh, he gets swarmed if he goes this way. So We never designed the church to be a place where 
important people would be. <laughs> so, but praise the Lord what God's done. Um, I, I want to share with you, we, we've been putting uh, Facebook jail for 14 days. I'm kind of done with Facebook, I mean, not Facebook, YouTube. I'm done with YouTube. We're out. Um, and I was listening to a podcast by Dr. Keith Rose, uh, vaccinate or not to vaccinate. I was so moved by this episode of The Scalpel, especially dealing with, that's what he, yeah. Larry. I was so moved by that episode, uh, 163, it's called The Scalpel with Dr. Keith Rose. I was so moved by it that um, I, I just uh, texted Keith and I said, can I Skype you in tonight? Because this is critical. A number of folks have been calling me. I was on vacation. They were like, hey, so-and-so got COVID or whatever. Can you help me get HCQ and the America's Frontline Doctor? And everyone's, you know, wanting. And, and there's just panic and fear. And, you know, some folks have been vaccinated. Others haven't. I want to dispel all this because we're taken off of YouTube because we are putting information out there that they want to suppress. Now, whether you agree with it or you don't, we just look at the data. And so I'm bringing Dr. Keith Rose. He's a, he's a published doctor, peer-reviewed published doctor. He's going to be here on Skype tonight. I, I think, and I'm throwing a curveball at the staff. We're going to do it at 7 o'clock. Is that okay with everybody? You don't want to miss this. I'll even let him field questions from the audience tonight to answer all the questions about the Delta variant, what's happening, uh, why to vaccinate or not to vaccinate. He's going to go through it. And, and if you listen to this episode, 163 of the scalpel, it's phenomenal. And we also have amazing doctors in our own fellowship. We have Judy Mikovits. Now she's in Tampa right now, but she's here. We've got amazing people that can answer these questions for you. And you need to ask them because you're going to, this is something we have to be prepared for. We have to be prepared for it. And if you've been vaccinated, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. You need to know what we're dealing with. And, and, and we're hearing from a, a number of inside sources that the second week of August, they're going to go nationwide lockdowns. So you need to be ready. And so, okay, thank you. Uh, you, you, need to be, you need to be ready. So come tonight or send somebody from your family to come tonight just to be up on the data. And you can ask questions and go for it. And I think we're going to provide that often for folks. And they're going to take us off the live stream. We're going to provide it here, live in person, asking questions and go from there. So um, with that being said, um, I, I just want you to know that next week and the week after, we're going to have, I think, two, two more. We're going to have... Uh, uh, Pastor Sam Gallucci, who's here in Ventura County, he's running for governor. Great friend of mine, love this guy. And Anthony Tremino. Uh, and and my, my heart for both those folks, I, I, I love them, they're friends, and I wanted them to meet the finest congregation on the face of the earth. And, you know, if you throw your hat in the ring, you want to run, come and share. Uh, but that doesn't apply for everyone because there's like 50 candidates, and some of them are just nuts. And... <laughs> But in this case, they're, they're two Christians. Now, I want you to know this about Larry. Uh, I, I wouldn't have had him come up here. I confirmed it with Jack Hibbs and with Larry. He loves Jesus Christ. He is a follower of Jesus Christ. He's also pro-life, and he, he contends for the unborn. Now, you got a chance to hear from him. This is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. We began with the gospel. And that's what I shared with you when we started. Larry shared a message that many pastors would say wasn't a sermon. I thought it was a phenomenal sermon. 
People think unless you're just verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and I, I love expository teaching of the scripture, but the reality is, show me where Jesus taught expositionally, he told a lot of stories. He had scriptures. He was the embodiment of the word. He was the word. But the idea is we're connecting lives and contending. And Jesus said, make disciples. And he didn't just say make disciples. He didn't say make converts. He said, make disciples. And not just disciples, but disciples of all nations. Nations are ideologies, constitutions, boundaries, borders. We're contending for the freedom of man. It's critical. And I, I don't care about the slings and arrows we'll face from the body of Christ that has created this this mess in California because of our apathy of engaging in the public square, the ecclesia. But not here. You're all fired up and you understand this is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people and these inalienable rights are given to us by God and no man will invoke his tyrannical will upon any of us and that's why California needs a new governor. Would you stand with me? And I'm going to pray for you. Lord, thank you for the most amazing congregation on the face of the earth. I, I'm so grateful, Lord, to have the privilege to be the pastor of such a wonderful, wonderful congregation. Lord Jesus, they love you. They love your word. They're here because of truth. That folks would hear the truth, know the truth, and that truth would set them free. The idea that somehow they have compromised that truth by engaging in the public square, in the ecclesia, contending for the freedom of their neighbors. Well, Lord, that's just not true. They have not compromised. They have engaged truly. Faith without works is dead. These folks, their faith is alive and well. They are contending for the least of these, the elderly who've had to die alone for a virus that has a 99.5% survival rate. They have contended for the children whose schools have been shuttered, for the business owners whose businesses have been devastated, for the abused that have been quarantined with their abusers. Lord, these folks, they have faith. Faith with works. They love you and they're contending for the freedom that you have given mankind. And so Lord, we thank you that you haven't given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. And you're the author of liberty. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And this is the freest place in California because there's no fear here. We fear God and no one and nothing else. And so, Lord, thank you. Holy Spirit, fill this place, bless these folks, encourage them. Lord, protect us, heal us, cover us, grant us wisdom, and go before us and order our steps that we would honor you all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Amen.